exploring faith journeys and sharing inspiring ministries that embody the good news of God, you are listening to The Cumberland Road. I'm your host, T.J. Melanoski. Reverend Jason Chambers is my guest. He is the resident chaplain at the University of Arkansas for Medical Services in Little Rock. He brings to the conversation his faith journey, which includes serving congregations in Arkansas and serving as a chaplain in the United States Navy, including tours in Japan and Afghanistan. Jason shares of a turning point in his life following a car accident and how his guiding principle is to be in the presence with people and help them in crisis. You are listening to the Cumberland Road Podcast, and here is my conversation with Jason Chambers. Jason Chambers, Thank you for being the guest on the podcast. I want to start by asking you, what is it like to be born in El Dorado? And where is that? (laughs) Um, Well, El Dorado is a boom town in South Arkansas known for the oil industry, uh, Murphy Oil, Lion Oil Companies. um, There's a refinery there. And um, anyway, the best OBGYNs in South Arkansas uh, in 1977, when I was born, was uh, in El Dorado, and uh, there just were I guess, not very many babies being born in the Camden Hospital at the time, also known as Washtenaw County Medical Center, um, where I used to work. But uh, my mom and dad were both born in that hospital in 1952, I believe, as they tell it. And uh, anyway, they chose to go to El Dorado for uh, for having me and my brother and sister. So, um, and then I went on later on to do my. Uh, clinical practicum in seminary in the same hospital I was born in, which was kind of cool. Oh, wow. 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 Um, before we get into your calling and, and your seminary life, your background includes um, your grandfather was a minister, Cumberland Presbyterian minister. So let's talk about what your childhood was like. Jason, have you known a time in your life uh, without God being part of the family conversation? Not really, not ever. I'm one of those, uh, I guess, cradle Christians, cradle Cumberland Presbyterians <laughs> or whatever, you know, right. just, I've always been part of the church. And, uh, my mother, uh, was an elder in the church, uh, that I grew up in. Um, later on, you know, after she'd left, uh, the church that her dad was pastor of and, uh, when I was in seminary, my dad became an elder. So both of my parents served as uh, elders in the local church. And um, that, that's been a big part of, of our family journey. Um, we always went to church unless we were just, I mean, deathly ill. And I can only think of a couple of times that we actually, you know, miss church. But uh, it's always been a part of my life. And So uh, church attendance in the Chambers household, there was no option. You were there then. You were there, um, and I'll tell one that if my brother ever listens to this, he'll he'll say, yeah, that he's telling the truth. But, you know, there's a rule in your house. You were ready to go uh, when we left for church, or you're going to get left at the house. And uh, anyway, Dad uh, left me at the house one Sunday when I wasn't ready. And uh, when I came home, I had an attitude adjustment, as Dad used to say. And next Sunday, I was ready to go to church on time. <laughs> <laughs> it was a one-time learning experience experience you didn't need to repeat for sure that's right well i hadn't heard that in a long time i i had a few probably more than a few attitude adjustments growing up Mm -hmm. well jason speaking of growing up um growing up in a christian household you know it's i would think it's pretty easy just to kind of learn about christ you know just through osmosis Mm -hmm. but with that in mind can you think in times of, of currently and even when you were younger, when you really did have some sort of meaningful experience, a meaningful encounter with God that was your own and, and maybe not through your parents or your grandparents? Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, I was trying to think back uh, to that growing up, going to Sunday school and 
Um, I knew the Bible stories and all that, but at about 11 years old, um, we had a, a revival a meeting at my home church um, in Camden, and um, uh, Buster Guthrie was our pastor at the time, and he'd gotten uh, Mark Hester to come and preach the revival. And I remember at 11 years old, you know, the first couple of nights of the revival, feeling a stirring in my heart um, when we got ready to do the just as I am, you know, uh, however many times until people respond. And and I, I, I had a hard grip on the pew, you know, those couple of nights. And by the third night, um, it was it, it just felt like my heart was going to explode in my chest if I didn't get out of the out of that that place and i remember walking out into the aisle and and you had to either commit or you know act like you were going to the bathroom and excusing <laughs> yourself one or the other you know it wasn't just step out there and decide oh wait a minute i'm not going out down i'm going back in the pew you know and, and so i did i went down and um asked uh christ into my heart and that became an important uh commitment i think in my life uh and it just always uh, kind of guided me from then on into choosing, um, you know, to go to Bethel, uh, to college, uh, to be in a Christian environment, and um, to be around other Christians. It's always been something important uh, to me. Mm-hmm. So that white knuckling experience, that's what I call that, when yeah. you grab the yeah. chair or the pew in, in front of you and just, you know, grab it white knuckling. Yeah. Jason, how has that relationship when you were 11, how has that changed and how have you grown in terms of understanding God and understanding Christ in your life and which has later led to a calling into in ministry? But I know you didn't jump from 11 to where you are no, now. <laughs> not at all. Um, I, I remember, you know, being very involved in church camp as a, as a youth and every summer I would go um and, you know, I started getting involved in, in music and playing guitar and all that at church camp. And so I think other people began to see a calling on me before I saw it. And um, I remember my pastor um, at, at the church at the time saying, from the pulpit at times, Jason's been called to preach just like his grandpa. And I was like, no, I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what was your response, you know, as a teenager um, and, and even... You know, even in college, you know, I mean, how did you respond to that? Well, I ran from it for a long time. Uh, I mean, a long time for a teenager is is uh, several years is a long time. <laughs> you know, you talk to people now after being in ministry for 20 plus years and you hear of people running from the ministry for, you know, 20, 30 years before they surrender to preach or, you know, answer that calling. And um I, you know, I did, uh, even going to Bethel, people thought, well, he's going to be a preacher. He's going to Bethel. And I wasn't sure that when I started as a freshman, um, I got there and I met you and, and, uh, other, other preachers that already knew that that was their calling and what they were going to do. And, uh, I just kind of hang on till I knew that that was what I wanted to do. And I think I was probably a junior before I made that decision, um, to be a ministerial candidate and, uh, to join the group, you know, and, <laughs> and I did, um, I had a very, uh, significant event during my college years that, uh, I think it was a turning point for me. Um, and I was part of the ministry team. Um, we traveled, uh, around the, the, just around the country during the summertime, um, there's a couple other people on the team and we would do revivals, um, go to church camps. And, um, I, we went from Tampa, Florida, all the way to San Francisco, California, um, and spots all between there, you know, where churches would have us to come and host us. And, um, you know, that, that being part of the balladeers for, I think two or three years too, um, in the summer or not summer, but the spring break, we would go and, and travel to churches around the country. And, yeah. And, um, and let me, let me interrupt you here just for a second, yeah. just for context. So this ministry team and you're attached to it because, uh, of the music element, because mm-hmm. you came to Bethel, uh, with a music scholarship. Right. And so you're, 
there's a group called the Balladeers that went right. and shared the Ministry of Music in in, mm-hmm. in various places. So sure. carry on. Just want to give some yeah, context. And, and, you know, they'd come to our church when I was growing up and stayed in our home. And that was my introduction to Bethel was the Balladeers coming to the church and, mm-hmm. you know, and singing and everything. I didn't think as a kid that I'd ever be part of that, but it was quite a quite an experience, uh, very uh, um, rewarding and as a blessing to me, I think, to be part of that. Mm-hmm. And um, and I did answer the call to ministry, I think, from being part of that and um, towards the end of that summer of, uh, uh, of working for the ministry team before I started back in my, um, senior year at Bethel, um, I was in a car accident that, uh, I had a state trooper on 530 South, uh, just outside of Little Rock that he told me, he said, I've worked this highway for 15 years and I've never seen anyone, um, have an accident here and, and walk away to tell the story. And uh, remember the friend of mine that was on the ministry team that uh, had, had taken a church uh, um, position in El Dorado and um, had his youngest son in my truck with me when I had the wreck. And neither one of us really were hurt. Um, I, you know, give God ble- the glory for that, that, uh, that God's protection was upon me during that uh, time in my life. But um, I remember the, the doors of the ambulance opening with people standing there with tears in their eyes. Mm. And I said to them when the door opened, I said, I think I'm ready to surrender. I think I know God is calling me and this is kind of a, you know, Damascus road experience and I'm ready to say yes. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what was it about that, um, car accident that to dig a little deeper that, made you say, yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready to say yes. Um, I think, you know, looking at Peniel, um, the, the Jacob wrestling with the angel experience, um, that's what the running was for me for a long time is I didn't want to do it. Um, uh, I, my granddad had struggled through his whole ministry, you know, and I think at 80 something when he, he passed away or close to before he passed away, still had mortgage on his house and all that. And, you know, he would just, he would give you the clothes off his back to help someone. And that servant uh, spirit and heart uh, was something that I think he taught to all of us in the family um, that, uh, that we always gave of ourselves. And sometimes that meant that we, you know, we're, we're giving sacrificially uh, that we didn't actually have to give, but we felt like God calling upon us to, you know, to help someone else. And, and we did that. And so, um, I think I'd wrestled with it and, uh, you know, finally said, Lord, you know, you're going to have to bless me, um, and equip me to do this because I'm, I don't like talking in front of people. I was nervous, (laughs) uh, introvert, if you will. Um, and I, I remember being at great lakes, um, as a uh, staff chaplain at the Navy's boot camp. And I was at the USS Trayer, which is the uh, training ship and uh, went up to do the capping ceremony for a group of recruits who just gone through battle stations. And, um, and one of the petty officers new to it, he said, he said, sir, he said, do you, uh, do you have trouble doing this? Remembering the prayer and the whole speech and, I said, yeah, I said, I get nervous every time I do it. And, uh, he said, but sir, he said, you do this for a living. I said, yeah, I know. And I got a D at college in public speaking. I stink <laughs> at it, you know, but I still do it. I get up and do it. You know, it wasn't very comforting to me to, to not do very well in public speaking and know that God was calling me into, uh, to the ministry. I almost felt like Moses and Aaron saying, you know, I need, I need somebody to go talk for me if I'm going to do this. Well, for those who are listening who maybe have uh, white-knuckled um, a chair or a pew for a profession of faith or, or even a calling in, into various type of ministry or any type of vocation, uh, what advice would you give them, Jason, of, of being able to—you'd uh, used the word earlier—surrender? How—what advice would you give to someone who is looking to surrender that internal struggle, that inner struggle of— of letting go of what you know is, is right. Well, um, 
what I what I tell people from serving on a committee on ministry in, in my presbytery uh, for I don't know I don't uh, about ten years or so I think is how long I was on it. But um, when I was still at Bethel and I just surrendered to preach, my brother was struggling with the same calling, and he said, "Hey, he said, uh, how do you know when you're called?" And I said, "I can't explain it." I said, "You just know." And uh, uh, my advice would be, do whatever you're doing until you know you find no happiness in it, and the only thing that makes you happy is the ministry, because um, it's. I don't think it's for everyone. It's not an easy journey for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I've, you know, had doubts about it sometimes. Is, is this really what I'm supposed to be doing? Um, even though I've done a bunch of things, but uh, going back and working in other secular fields, um, I've always come back to the ministry of some sort um, and feeling like being with people and helping them in crisis um, is is what God's called me to do. Jason, how did you go from seminary to uh serving in the military and becoming a chaplain in the navy um that goes back to the servant spirit i think again um this is what jason's plan was not god's plan but jason's plan was to watch grandpa struggle for 50 years and then you know not ever really retire and uh and i was like hey look when I get to about 70, I'm done. I'm punching out. I'm not doing this anymore, <laughs> you know, and I want to be retired where I can do that, enjoy, you know, retirement and all that. Mm-hmm. So my plan was to go into the, to the military and uh, spend about 20 years and retire and then be able to work and serve in a small uh, church that my grandpa had served in for many years that struggled to, uh, you know, to be able to uh, employ uh, clergy full time. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, that plan uh, fell through. It didn't work out the way that I planned, um, and I left uh, before I retired. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so I'm back at it. You know, I'm back at doing ministry. Uh, went into the church again after I left for a time, but uh, I really I loved the military experience, getting to travel to other countries. Um, and to be with people of all different uh, denominational flavors. Um, and the, one of the mottos that they had when I was uh, in chaplain school was, you know, that we, um, we provide for our own, we facilitate for others, and we care for all. And the care for all, I think, has been really my uh, guiding uh, principle through the ministry is care for everyone the best that I knew how to do so. I didn't always successfully do that probably, but that has been what I've tried to do is to care for everyone. What does pastoral care look like uh, in comparison to maybe um, a local congregation and then a branch in the military? I think there's a big difference between church ministry and institutional ministry and in the institutional setting um i think as an introvert i've always found that to be easier because you have a captivated audience <laughs> I mean, you know you've got in, in boot camp i was there as staff chaplain in the basic training of the navy for three years and um you know i go and you know minister to troops uh you know, in their barracks where they're at, uh, doing core values, uh, briefs and, um, doing chapel briefs, talking about religious freedom to them and just what that looks like. Uh, but having a, an office in their barracks where they live, where they can come to me, um, as, as they want to. And, um, and in the hospital setting with people in a, in a hospital room, um, that can't get out and go to, uh, to church, uh, during their, their illness, whatever their hospital stay is, is, you know, if it's a day or if it's, uh, you know, weeks, uh, currently working in oncology, um, people are there for, you know, 40, uh, 50 days or more. Sometimes I've seen them there, uh, for a hundred days or so. And, and they just, they're there for a long, long period of time. And, you just go and you just continue to minister to them and, and their needs. I think isolation is a lot of, of uh, the problem that they deal with um, and not having family to come be with them. 
Um, and that's, that's how we minister to them is through supporting them. It's uh, that presence. Um, and it's not the same way in the church. You know, we talked about it before we jumped on here about knocking on doors and not everybody wants you to show up at their house and knock on their doors. I know, you know, it's hard to, to keep a clean house and ready for the minister to come by just any time. And there were some people I knew were uh, welcoming of that and wanted you to come by as often as possible. And a lot of people would tell me straight up, Hey, don't come by to see me. You know? And I was like, okay, glad you told me that. Um, when I kept office hours at the church, um, uh, from my model in the institutional setting, it was kind of, Hey, if I'm going to keep office hours at the church, my expectation is that you're going to come by the church for visitation. If you need to see the pastor, you're coming here. I'm not going to your homes. And, uh, my door was open and that's just kind of how I did it. I don't know that. I mean, I, my last church, people came by all the time. Um, people from the church, people from the community, other pastors would come by and, um, and all that. And, and you just never knew what you were going to get into, and I found sometimes having to get a sermon ready too, is that people would come by and I'm thinking, well, I got to get this bulletin done by this afternoon. I should have already gotten this done. <laughs> and, uh, I don't have to worry about a bulletin or getting a sermon together as a chaplain in the hospital, um, because I'm not preaching anymore. And there's a lot of freedom, I think, uh, for me to focus on caring for people that I didn't feel like I had sometimes in the church. Right, right. So, Jason, uh, you were telling me earlier that um, you're back in school, you're back in training. So if you don't mind, just talk for a few minutes uh, why you're back in school, uh, what kind of training are you seeking, and um, what your plans are in terms of ministry and life. Sure. Um, well, uh, this kind of started a couple of years back um, with Jack Ryan, uh, who was the chaplain of the VA in Little Rock, recruiting me, trying to get me to come over to the VA and be a chaplain there. And I kept putting it off. Um, I was looking for the perfect CPE training experience um, in the Memphis VA, the nighttime extended program where it's, you know, you go one night a week and spend some time over there and then uh, uh, work in the church for the most time. Mm. Well, they didn't have a CPE instructor and that's clinical pastoral education for those listening that don't know uh, what CPE is. Um, and that's training that's required for uh, hospital chaplaincy, hospice chaplaincy, and uh, some other things uh, like our, I don't think our federal bureau of chaplains requires it, but it's always good uh, training to have. I didn't have to have it as a military chaplain, but now looking back on um I wish I had it before I went into military chaplaincy. It would have helped me in some areas, um, having had that background. But um, you go through uh, case studies, looking at visits, what went right, what went wrong. And in a group of peers who, uh, you know, there's, it's hard because you, you, you become vulnerable. You make yourself vulnerable in a way that, um, you know, you almost can't be anywhere else, uh, maybe with your church ex uh, people um, or just anywhere. Um, and they become just a family really for you um, as we share some of those heartbreaking experiences. Um, you learn some of your triggers. I've learned one of mine is that uh, when I go down to the emergency department, or I get called on a code blue uh, to a grieving spouse who just lost her husband. Um, for those of you that don't know, um, I'm a little bit older than my wife. There's about a 17 year age gap between us. We're both, we're both in the ministry. She's a Methodist pastor. Um, and uh, having that, um, having that age gap between us, I just think about sometimes, you know, that, Jason, you're going to die a long time before she does, unless something just tragic happens. Um, and she's going to be alone. And, and I think about that a lot. I worry about her, um, you know, and, and I have to tell myself all the time, you know what, she's going to be perfectly fine without me. Um, when I go, I think she's probably going to, um, to say, I'm glad I don't have to put up with him anymore. <laughs> Um, she would probably say no, you know, and I know she'll be heartbroken at that time, uh, when we, uh, leave this or one of us leaves this earth and leaves the other. Um, 
But um, I think about that. It's a trigger for me. And I'm sad for a lot of those grieving wives um, when they're just breaking apart right there, um, not knowing what to do. Um, some of them, their husbands have always managed their bank accounts and all that. And I'm glad that we've been intentional in our marriage about uh, both of us knowing how to handle the bills uh, so that neither one of us is in that 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 position where we don't know what to do uh, when something like that happens tragically. But um, but yeah, that's that's part of the training and that's part of my triggers and learning what they are. And um, now, you know, I can walk into that situation and not get uh, enmeshed in it uh, with uh, with what's going on, but be able to separate myself from it and care for that person and uh, provide the care that they need in the moment. You have a really unique experience, Jason, and, um, you know, you've served in a local church. Uh, you've served in a hospital setting, you've served on a military base and a um, ship. Mm -hmm. And so in terms of faith sharing or evangelism, what is the commonalities between those three? And, and what are the differences? Um, man, uh, you know, one experience, one experience I had as a, uh, ship chaplain and, um, I was, uh, I, I was a reserve chaplain on active duty for special work assignment. And it was a 180 day assignment to a destroyer squadron, uh, in the seventh fleet out of Japan, but going over there, uh, right out of the church. And I had no training, no, no idea what I was getting into, <laughs> But I was wearing the blue coveralls and uh, I had the gold cross on my collar and I was on a ship where we didn't have a lay leader to lead any worship services or anything. So it was kind of a spiritually dark place for the Christians on board. Um, and one of the uh, one of the young junior officers on the ship saw me in the passageway um, coming around the ship one day. And she said to me, she said, uh, chaplain, she said, you don't know how good it is to see the cross on your shoulder coming through here. Um, I would have experiences uh, when I was in deployment um, in Afghanistan. And one of the officers there, I was walking around looking at the ground, trying not to trip over uh, rocks and other things. And he said, chaplain, he said, you're the last person on this base that needs to have his head down. You know, so that cross on my collar as the chaplain uh, was a symbol of hope uh, for a lot of people in, um, in, you know, in dark times and difficult times, uh, be it that you're out in the middle of nowhere and the first uh, experience on a ship and going to sea, you know, I was standing there looking back at the pier and as the ship got further or further away from it, and I couldn't see any land or anything. All I could see was the ocean. Um, I was like, man, I don't know when I'll ever get home again. You know, I, I can't just leave, you know, I'm stuck here and <laughs> makes you think about Jonah and the whale experience or Jonah on that ship, you know, or Paul with, uh, with people on his missionary journeys and what it's like to, to be totally, uh, dependent on other people to get you where you need to go. And, uh, uh, in Japan, it was like that. Afghanistan was a lot like that, you know, when you would leave. Um, and coming back to the States, being in a car, driving on your own and having that dependence or independence uh, for yourself again uh, was quite, uh, quite an amazing feeling for me. Um, in the church setting, you, you know, you, you know, the thing is, God gives us freedom, uh, freedom to come to church, freedom not to come to church. You know, and when I go and visit people in the hospital, they can say, hey, I want you to come back and visit again or hey, I don't, I'm good. You know, I don't want to talk to a chaplain mm -hmm. and we've got to be able to accept that, uh, you know, that rejection, if you will, um, maybe not so much of me as a person, but um, just that they are not interested in, you know, a chaplain uh, at that point, uh, uh, that moment in their, um, in their hospital stay, um, people in the church, you know, may not want, um, may not, you know, I can't beat the doors and make people come to church. Um, I felt like sometimes maybe, you know, sessions wanted me to go out there and, and just 
beat on doors and, and, and make people go to church, you know, but the, the thing is that we can't do that. That's a hard thing for us sometimes, I think as pastors to accept is that, you know, no matter what we do, uh, you know, it, it may have no bearing on uh, church attendance and um, interest in the church. Um, I can beat my chest, beat the pulpit, cry my heart out and all that. Um, and it, it may have no impact on, you know, on who comes. And that's sometimes a hard thing for me to, uh, to get my head around and, and just accept. And, uh, and I've tried to just always encourage people, you know, you be the light in the community, go out there and be God's ambassador. Um, all of us, I think are called to that a ministry of, of, uh, just a presence in our community and, and being like that cross on the collar, people knowing that we're a Christian. And uh, I think that that's what all of us as, as Christians are called to be is, is to be ambassadors of Christ um, in a dark place in the workplace. Um, One of our chaplains I work with is doing, or has done his PhD on workplace spirituality and what that means, you know, is it important to people at work or is it not, you know, and, and I'm, I'm wrestling with this thing of, you know, if, if people, um, you know, if people have a church home and a pastor, you know, why do they need somebody to come visit them in the chat, in the hospital sometimes? Um, and the same, you know, if, if, uh, people have chaplains in the workplace or at the hospital and, you know, we're there everywhere else other than the church, why do, why do we need ministers in the church? Why do we need to go to church? And I, I don't know. I don't have answers for those questions yet, but it's things that I'm wrestling with right now uh, in the church life, you know, is, is where is my place or where is the place of the professional clergy? That's interesting. You know, I haven't really pondered that. I guess my, my mind raced with your question as in, well, why would I want my community to be small? Why wouldn't I want to surround myself with many people who have more wisdom or more life experience, uh, more patience, more curiosity than me to help, help me grow and to help me be centered. But, but there is that consumerism aspect of and especially here in the United States, probably in the last, what, 50 to 80 years, where a clergy is the paid professional. And mm-hmm. how many paid professionals do I need in my life? Do I need, yeah. two, do I need two plumbers or one? Yeah. <laughs> do I need, you know, one person who can repair my roof or do I need eight? I don't know. Maybe that's based upon the need. That's interesting, though. I guess my gut response would be is the larger my community is, uh, the, the better off we all are. Mm-hmm. I had a, a great, you know, rewarding experience uh, in Calico Rock with the Ministerial Alliance there. It's probably one of the best I've ever worked with where, you know, we'd meet once a month and come together and we'd look at, um, you know, the needs of the community um and we paid for a lot of people that were in need of paying their gas bill light bills Mm. um other things of that nature and being able to help people and uh, i enjoyed that experience um you know when i was a a boot camp chaplain i had the largest church attendance uh, in my ministry um, being a pastor in the contemporary service, we had seven, 800 people would come to worship and I'd call home, you know, and when I was a pastor at fellowship in uh, Camden, uh, prior to deployment and my active duty career, I had eight people there for, for a long time. And, and it was just, you know, for seven years when I, when I preached there, eight people, nobody died. I didn't add any to the church. And, you know, I, I just, um, you know, I'd preach my heart out and I got to the point where I don't know what to do to, to change, you know, church membership to grow the church and everything. Um, I went off to, uh, you know, the Navy and my aunt Roberta, uh, my mom's sister came in and pastored the church for about 14 years or so. I think after that, and the church grew to about 50 and, you know, (laughs) she didn't do anything, you know, like bringing a praise band or, uh, anything like that, but it just, 
<laughs> they started meeting together and having breakfast between worship and Sunday school and started inviting people, hey, come eat breakfast with us and come to Sunday school. And people started coming and attending and um, it just began to grow from that. But, um, you know, you hear the thing of, of there's no atheists in a foxhole. <laughs> what I found with small uh, membership, and I think this is what's probably more applicable to Cumberland Presbyterians than anybody else, because we have so many rural churches that are very small in membership is that, you know, I could, uh, I could walk into the sanctuary at great lakes with my guitar slung over my back, walk up to the stage. And I'm telling you from my first experience, uh, walk right up there in front of everybody and whip out the guitar and just start playing music and singing in front of, you know, seven, 800 people and not have one bit of nervousness or anxiety about it. And uh, our Southern Baptist uh, region chaplain who had been there, been a Navy uh, chaplain for about 32 years, he's like, I can't believe this guy. Look at this. Look what he's doing. He just went up there. He don't care. I was like, well, I don't know anybody there. I've got nobody to judge me or anything. And that internal critique, you know, that critical voice that I always have of, boy, you know, they were looking at me funny when I was preaching. I wonder what they're thinking. You know, are they going to not come back to church again? I can't lose, you know, one or two members when I only have eight, you know, <laughs> you know, I have those things. It was harder for me to preach in the small church than it was in a big audience, just because I judged myself more on delivery and I could see every eyeball in the sanctuary and, you know, just looking at those things. Um, but there was more intimacy with people there. You know, when I did Bible study in Afghanistan and we talked about uh, our fears and I had a senior chief that's like, hey, man, you know, we've got 400 Taliban that's about to overrun our place or not. Oh, no, we had a base of about 400. He said there's about 40,000 about to overrun us. And I'm thinking I'm going to die right here. You know, I'm going to die. And uh, everybody's, you know talking about it, worried about it, and nothing ever happened. You know, what we feared never happened. Uh, that same senior chief had an arm full of grenades sleeping at the wall, you know, thinking that they were going to come over the wall just any moment. But, um, you know, we can let our fears like that grip us. And one of the hopeful things I read um, that, you know, not that I my prayers had any bearing on it, and I've been reminded that by that uh, by my supervisor in CPE, but um, I was reading the Bible one day while I was there and thinking about all that. And I, I came into Second Kings, um, I think it's chapter 19, uh, 32 through 34, where, you know, God says to Hezekiah, you know, I'm going to protect the city and uh, there won't be an arrow that will come into the city and harm it. You know, nothing like that will happen and that God would protect the city by his might. And I, I began to just pray that uh, scripture, and I put it as a signature on my emails. I was like, pray this for me. If you're praying, you know, pray this for me, that God will protect me while I'm here and protect the guys that are with me. And, you know, people say, well, you know, why do you think your God was stronger than their God? And, you know, all those questions. But um, I, I just, you know, that gave me hope knowing that, I could trust in that promise that God was with me no matter what happened and that God would, uh, would watch over and defend me. And even if he didn't, you know, my eternal reward was, uh, was in heaven. It wasn't here on this earth, you know, and, and, um, that's what I, I hoped in. And, uh, it gave me strength on the darkest of days is trusting God. Um, but, uh, but I think that intimacy in those small groups where we could encourage and strengthen one another, you know, we have that in the small church, if we'll, gather together, um, and encourage one another. And, um, and that, that would be a message I would have for people in a small church that think, Hey, we can't do anything. You can, you know, you can encourage one another, um, and give hope to one another because that's where I think growth from the church comes is, uh, is being able to, uh, to believe, um, that, you know, God's still, doing something here. He's not through. God wasn't through with fellowship when I left, you know, eight people and it grew, you know. Um, so I always have hope that God can use the the few and grow it to many if we'll just trust him and, and believe in each other um, and strengthen one another. Do you think, Jason, you know, as a minister and a military chaplain and a hospital chaplain, that in situations where you've been in, 
where you have faced death, experienced death, that that brings into the, our minds that that we're finite. Do you think that connects us with God or a higher power? And if we already have faith, does it strengthen it even more as opposed to when, I don't know, things are going predictably or maybe even well that we don't ponder or think quite as often of having having a relationship with God and mm -hmm. growing in that relationship. What's been your experience or, or, or your thoughts? I think, uh, you know, what I've experienced just in the last year, you know, going in and making a pastoral assessment, you know, just of the spiritual needs of people, um, some people that have no family support or anything. And, and COVID has played a huge role in what support we have in the church or in the hospital. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's what got me into this uh, initially was that when I'd have people in the nursing home, I couldn't go in because of our restrictions um, from COVID. And I was like, hey, you know, I'm healthy. I can get on the front line and I want to be on the front line where people need support. Um, and I think that's what led me out of the church into the hospital uh, when I made this transition to um, to hospital chaplaincy. But um, there are people there who have a room full of people. Um, and oftentimes I don't feel like they need the chaplain as much as those that are by themselves, you know, maybe no family. Um, and you come in the room and it seems that you give them hope. And, um, and there are people that have that faith in God who are strengthened by it and say, would you say a prayer with us? And then I've had some like a couple of weeks ago, an experience that I had that someone said, no, you know, refusing physical therapy, refusing uh, to eat. And they said, well, let's send the chaplain in there. You know, and I think that the thought may have been, well, maybe the chaplain can go in there and, and uh, get them to come out of their shell. And uh, I went in there thinking, well, I'm going to change the world and, you know, get him to do all this. Or maybe I thought that's what my mission was from the hospital. Mm -hmm. And I didn't I didn't succeed. I failed at it. You know, I walked in and I said, hey, um, I'm the chaplain and I uh, just wanted to come by and check on you. And he goes that bad, huh? And that was the end of it. You know, we were talking about that case this morning and my supervisor, uh, supervisor, I can't say it. She said, uh, I would have said. I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> uh, my response wasn't quite that, but uh, he kind of withdrew more from me in that experience. And, and I knew it could have been better or done better, um, but I didn't at that moment. And sometimes you take those fails. Um, you try not to let it affect going to the next room and, and just starting over and doing it again. But, um, you know, with that, terminal diagnosis of, uh, you know, I'm not going to leave this hospital. Uh, some people turn to God and find strength there. And you see others who, um, they just withdraw from everything. And, um, and I, I think it's important, or at least for me, it's important to have that faith and knowing that, that I do have hope that even though these may be the, the last days or the worst days of my life, um, that God will not leave or forsake me, that I know God's there uh, with me. And that's a source of strength that, that I have. And hopefully when I go into the room, um, as we talk about faith, um, that I can give that same um, hope uh, to other people. And I know that not everybody, um, do, uh, you know, receives that. But some do. And I was reminded in Ecclesiastes, uh, I think it was chapter 11 in the upper room uh, earlier this month, uh, that you keep going out there and you keep sowing. If you watch the rain clouds, you know, or the clouds thinking that, well, it's cloudy, it may rain today. I better not uh, go out and try it, you know, to keep you from planting the field. But uh, my encouragement from that was that uh, go out and sow, you know, and, and hope to seek uh, or seek to uh, reap a a harvest from that um and just water the seeds that you plant you know with with prayer and um and friendship and and uh that's what my supervisor always says you don't know how good a friend i can be and that's what i try to be you know with everybody i see in the hospital is try to be a friend to them uh, yeah well jason 
as somebody who is uh, entering back into the hospital chaplaincy, um, you have a, a inward perspective, but also a unique perspective on the church, uh, the church universal, and the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. What ideas do you have for us looking into the future? Um, you know, for the Cumberland Presbyterian Church, I hear from being on the Committee on Ministry for a number of years, um, one of the things I hear at Presbytery all the time is we need ministers, we need more ministers. Well, for somebody leaving the pastorate and going back to hospital chaplaincy, that sometimes that can I take it on myself. It's not that they're trying to do that, but it puts a heavy guilt trip on me that I've <laughs> left the church, you know. <laughs> and uh, and sometimes I, I do kind of think about that and say, man, you know, um, I don't know that I made the right decision, uh, but uh, I I do feel like I did uh, for me and my family, um, and for um, for what I my gifts are my unique gifts uh, to go and to minister to people where not everybody has a gift to go in there into emergency department where somebody has been shot up and, you know, they're bleeding all over the place or um, an experience I had back in the summer of, of uh, witnessing um, a young man die from being stabbed to death by a family member. And, uh, you know, going back to Cain and Abel and uh, biblical stories that this has been with us from the beginning of time, um, I've seen the worst of humanity doing it, but also seen some of the best of it. Um, and I, I think for me, it tells me just how critical it is for us as Christians to be in our communities, be a light in our communities, and to go and to try to um, try to be hope in the midst of that kind of suffering, to minister to people. Uh, we just had a shooting this last week down in Dumas, Arkansas, where I think there were over 20 people shot in a mass casualty type of a deal. And as far as I know, only one death has occurred uh, to date. But um, the church, I think, has a responsibility um, in our communities to change some of that, you know, the violence that happens because people don't have hope. Um, you know, in our cities, um, you don't hear about it as much out in the country. Um, but, um, you know, shootings and things of that nature, it seems like do happen. And it's in our news all the time. And it's just a, a reminder that um, God has sent us into the world, you know, not to um, uh, to barricade ourselves up and hide in the church. And so often um, my experience uh, um, just from looking at the church uh, around the world is that we're inward focused in our church and we forget about the world around us. And I, I just, I want to see us get out of the church and go into the mission field uh, in our community, um, you know, and not look at other churches as being a competitor to us. It's oftentimes how I've, you know, kind of seen us treat one another. Even Cumberland Presbyterians, I grew up in a town with four Cumberland Presbyterian churches, that, you know, and <laughs> we've become our own competitors at times. And uh, that's not in any way helpful, I don't think, to the, the mission of the church, but uh, to work together to see how can we come together and um, and reach the needs of people in our community. Um, and that's... Well, to to push, push you a little further, Jason, so in... In 2022, what does that message of hope sound like? What does it look like? What does it feel like for the person that that is in search of hope? Oh, uh, well. Or they don't even have to be in search of it, but in absence of hope. I saw something uh, just you know, this week, uh, looking on Facebook at Cumberland Chatter and looking at the things that churches are doing, um, the Cumberland Magazine has always been something that has shown me what's going on. Um, you know, in churches, I was thinking about our good old buddy, Jimmy Bird, uh, you know, from Bethel and um, his church being hit by a tornado and, and the work to rebuild it and uh, those kind of mission works. Um, that, uh, I'm trying to think what they call that, that ministry now it's, it's, uh, I've forgotten it for, for a moment, but, uh, just going and rebuilding, um, churches, uh, in those, 
uh, difficult times. Um, but uh, that's the that's the work. Yeah, you know, we could see it if we look for it, uh, the magazine online. Um, but so often we're disconnected from the rest of the denomination and what we're doing around the world because maybe we don't uh, we don't access those resources. But uh, but that's what I see where I see it, you know. Yeah, and I, I wonder if it's so much of our DNA, well, it's twofold, so much of our DNA that uh, we don't recognize the the message of hope that we're spreading and sharing, or if it is also sort of a humbling thing, like we don't want to uh, be telling a neighbor or a coworker or a friend, hey, guess what I just did yesterday? Yeah. You yeah. know, and don't want it to become braggadocious. But yeah, there is that element of trying to remain connected, but also in search of of um, ideas. And, and, and maybe it's not something that we can do alone, but gathering with a group of people, maybe it's um, a message of hope that we can share collectively. I think um, probably in just kind of wrapping up, uh, uh, you know, everything that my experiences and of course, we didn't get into drug counseling from when I did that uh, earlier, but one of the precepts, I think it's a spiritual precept anyway, is that to keep what you have, you have to give it away. And, you know, going on mission trips and doing things, I think is where people grow spiritually. Um, when you get out and you do for other people, um, you see what God's doing and you become a part of it. Um, Dr. Nick used to say um, the, the, the term theosis, you know, that uh, that we are, uh, so small and finite, you know, and God is so big that, uh, God, um, you know, gives a little part of himself to each and every one of us through the Holy spirit and that we are, uh, participants and what God's doing, uh, co-creators, if you will, in the world. And, um, and, and that's where God's using us, I think is, uh, by being the hands and feet and, um, and going out there. And that's not just for the the preachers, you know, the professional paid Christians, but that's for all Christians. That's right. How can we continue to follow you on your faith journey, Jason? Uh, I'm on Facebook, but I don't post a lot there. Um, that's more, <laughs> you know, my kids and my yeah. wife and kind of what's going on in the family. But um, I, I think, you know, in the future, just I'll be at Presbytery um, and, um, hopefully continue this journey, uh, into chaplaincy in the VA, um, or somewhere like that. And that's where a hope and passion for me is, is helping other, you know, veterans like myself, uh, and, and being a light there. Um, and, and that's what, what I feel strongly led towards right now, but, uh, but being able to come back and share about it, what's going on, you know, in the church and, yeah. uh, just, uh, just always being a part of, of uh, who we are as Cumberland Presbyterians, being on the frontier. That's kind of how I see it. Is it, you know, I'm, I'm on the, I'm on the mission field. I'm in the frontier still, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, listen, I know you have two children that are asking you to be dad right now. So I thank you for sharing your time with me. You're welcome. It's, it's been a joy and a privilege to be here. And thank you for everything that you've shared, Jason and Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Grab a friend and travel with me on the next journey down Cumberland Road.